Welcome to Let's Talk About Health in Africa, a podcast in which we talk to leaders, practitioners, and change makers about some of the things that we should be doing to improve healthcare in Africa. Today, my next guest on Let's Talk About Health in Africa is Dr. Ankia Kotsi, who is the chairperson of the Society for Diabetes and Endocrinology in South Africa. She's a senior lecturer at the, in the Faculty of Medicines and Health Sciences at the University of Stellenbosch, and she specializes in diabetes preventive medicine. Dr. Kotze, welcome to Let's Talk About Health in Africa. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Wonderful. So you specialize in diabetes preventive medicine. I thought perhaps we could begin by talking about the challenges that diabetes poses to African health systems, just to put it into perspective. What is diabetes? How does it impact individuals? And when should individuals and families be worried about it? And what should they do about it when they suspect someone has diabetes? Yeah. Thanks, Linnaeus. I mean, traditionally, when we think about diabetes, you know, we think of pathophysiologically distinct um, opposites of the pole. And on the one side, we have what we call the autoimmune diabetes or type 1 diabetes. Um, which is characterized mostly by autoimmune destruction of the cells in the pancreas that produce insulin. And towards the other end of the spectrum, we have what we call type 2 diabetes, or traditionally referred to as type 2 diabetes, which traditionally has been characterized mostly by insulin resistance. So, so to suggest that even though there's enough insulin coming from the pancreas, there's a, a, a resistance to the action of that insulin in the periphery. Now, both of these conditions lead to hyperglycemia. Um, and hyperglycemia has certain consequences. So you asked me, when should a family suspect that? So in a child or younger age individual of normal weight, who are very thirsty, who lose a lot of weight and who present more acutely, you would suspect absolute insulin deficiency or traditionally called type one diabetes, as opposed to type two diabetes where blood glucose levels might be slightly elevated for a longer duration of time. And people might initially not even know they have type two diabetes because they might not have that profound degree of hyperglycemia. Having said that, um, it's so important to note that type 2 diabetes is not less dangerous than type 1 diabetes because you can often have high blood sugar for a significant period of time without knowing, but that does not mean the organs are not exposed to that. So any person who develops symptoms suggestive of hyperglycemia, and that includes a lot of um, drinking very thirsty, we call it polydipsia, um, polyuria, and weight loss, should be tested for, should undergo glucose testing. 
but any individual susceptible or with risk factors of type 2 diabetes, such as overweight um, or obesity, age, um, and so forth, or other components of the metabolic syndrome, should in fact undergo testing for diabetes, irrespective of whether they show symptoms or not. Yes, that's very clear. So, so normally, if people see these sort of telltale signs, they should go and get tested to just establish whether they have it. So, if it's not detected, if you don't get tested in a timely manner and, you know, and, and put on treatment, what are some of the complications that can arise from un yeah. uncontrolled hyperglycemia? Yeah. So if we think about type 2 diabetes, Linus, that is often the hyperglycemia, but also the company it keeps. So we offer encounter type 2 diabetes in the setting of metabolic syndrome, which has inherent risk. I will sort of come and define that a little bit better just now. So when we consider the end organs involved in diabetes or that suffer from the consequences of hyperglycemia. We think of the small vessels in the body. So we call that the microvasculature. And we think about the macrovasculature. That's more the big vessels in the body that carry oxygen. So any of the microvascular complications can occur in people with either type of diabetes and in individuals with type 2 diabetes, they can also have the microvascular complications, but because of the presence of the metabolic syndrome, they often also have macrovascular complications. So the microvascular complications um, is mostly retinopathy, so that is the back of the eye that is affected. It is nephropathy, so renal involvement and peripheral neuropathy. So those are the vessels, or if you have a peripheral neuropathy, it's the vessels that actually carry oxygen to the nerves, the furthest away from the center of your body. And if they don't adequately produce or carry the oxygen that is required, the nerves start dying off. Those are what we call the microvascular complications. The macrovascular complications involves the blood vessels of the brain, the heart, and the rest of the body. So if you have a stroke, for instance, or if you have type 2 diabetes, you are then at risk of stroke, heart attacks, and peripheral vascular disease with loss of peripheral limbs eventually if it is not addressed timely. Now, it's important to know that all of these complications can also be silent. So you might have silent angina or ischemia without knowing it if you have long-standing diabetes that can also be asymptomatic. So it's actually a terrible disease that causes suffering without giving a warning of the suffering mostly. Yes, very serious complications, actually. So one of the ways I suppose that health systems and physicians like yourself could try to prevent things escalating to the extent that people are at risk of having stroke, you are managing the condition properly is to empower people right with information we've been having a lot of conversations like this and information is one of the the themes that comes again and again that is lacking in the african setting that people just don't have the right information to take the right decisions about their health whether to get 
tested or not. So how do we empower, how should uh, health systems and physicians such as yourself be empowering individuals to make sure they have the right information yeah. they need to take the right choices? Yes, whenever I think of health and empowering people with the right knowledge, I think of that only being one slice of the, of the cake, if you may, in terms of the solution. You know, there's no question that we need to empower people with diabetes, but by only doing that, I think, you know, the emphasis is moved more to individual choice, where I think, unfortunately, in Africa, while that is definitely a contributor to the problem, there's a much bigger elephant in the room, you know, where systems, um, A, does not necessarily empower these patients, but that as a result of certain systems, it does not matter how much we empower a patient if they don't actually have a choice, um, if that makes sense. So, so even if I think it's completely vital to empower our patients, and I think we can do it better, and I'll share some suggestions of how I think we can do that, I just want us to stand still and recognize that patient empowerment is vital, but it's often limited. The execution of that empowerment is often limited in settings that does not support change or better behavioral choices and so forth. And I think if we don't address that, um, we will forever be um, clinicians who fail to be fulfilled with a diabetic consultation because simply the patients sometimes don't have the power to enact those choices that they really want to make. So how can we empower um, patients? I mean, we can empower them individually in communities um, and so forth. But I think something that's very important in Africa and that I've seen in my practice is to not hand out sort of brochures and letters that will be in the dustbin. So it's about engaging with a patient on more than one level, on more than one occasion, by more than one healthcare practitioner on an individual level and having a central message that remains constant. So what often happens in practice is the dietitian at one of the peripheral hospitals, and I'm just using a random example, will advise patients to have brown sugar instead of white sugar. Um, and the patients would spend all their earnings to buy <laughs> brown sugar, whereas the consequences of that sugar is the same and they think they've got the right intention. So first of all, to make sure that we send the right, correct message and that the right, correct message is repeated on more than one platform, on more than one time um, to ensure the, the central message gets through. So consistent, accurate messaging that is delivered from different levels of engagement with the patient so that they hear the same thing again and again very important but one of the things actually just since we are talking about diet anyway one thing that has been coming a lot in our conversations is that as africans you're an african woman and you see how we 
it within our communities. One thing that's coming up again and again is that as Africans, we have abandoned some of the good things about how we eat and, and some of the traditional things that we would normally do that actually encourages good health. What is your opinion on the subject of choices of food. Linus, when I speak to my patients, you know, I often tell them that we, and I include me in that conversation, that, you know, if we were to go back to the way we were eating sort of our roots, um, you know, we wouldn't have been in this metabolically disadvantaged position. Because if you think of the developmental origins of health and disease, one is programmed intrauterine for survival. So if you are programmed in a certain way and you meet the circumstances for which you were programmed, you are fine. Problem is if you are programmed in a certain way and you meet environments with surplus, your programming will still try to store energy. So we probably intrauterine were not exposed to excess as an African child in, in utero. And therefore, I think our intrauterine programming is aimed to conserve. So currently, the circumstances with, you know, adopting a more urban culture, having more readily access to food that is dense in carbohydrates, dense in you know, additional substances, but nutrient poor, we do and we conserve as we were programmed to do. So if we were met by, by famine, for instance, we would be able to survive relatively comfortably to someone that did not have that programming. Um, but to the contrary, now we are met with access to all of these products that we might not have been programmed to encounter. And I think that's the mismatch between those environments that actually contribute to our problems of, of what we call the meat obesity um, pandemic in Africa. So, you know, so I strongly advise, I often ask my patients, um, you know, what they feed their children. And I often ask them, but is that what they had as children? And we often have that conversation. A lot of my work is in the diabetes and pregnancy field. And I stand amazed that we sometimes give our children things that we wouldn't have wanted for ourselves um, when we were growing up and we didn't have access to. And I'm shuddering to think what the consequences of that transgenerational impact will be if we don't address that going forward. It's a very looming big challenge that I think African health systems will have to try and get a handle on. Yeah. But obviously part of the management of diabetes requires that you're able to test people and detect the presence of diabetes in, yeah. in those patients. But in a lot of countries, one of the biggest challenges is that the tests themselves they are very expensive the treatments whether you need oral agents or whether you need insulin they are very costly and of course just managing the disease itself you need to monitor glucose consistently is this a challenge that you experience in your setting and how do you see others dealing with this challenge when caring for patients across yeah. uh, south africa across the continent yeah 
Linus, uh, COVID um, actually showed us things that we've been suspecting long ago, but haven't sort of been able to verify. So if you think about the undiagnosed component of people with undiagnosed diabetes in Africa, you know, two thirds of people are actually undiagnosed. So I walk around with diabetes. So what you're saying is a real problem. And COVID has showed us that, um, you know, a lot of these problems are actually intertwined. So if someone developed COVID, they for the first time had access to testing for diabetes. Um, and even though it's not severe COVID or that COVID isn't causative, we noted that a lot of people in the background population actually have diabetes without knowing. So maybe that's one of the good things the pandemic brought to us to realize but these things are sort of devils who dance with each other and therefore we need to in order to save the person we need to address both so it's a real challenge um especially due to the as you said the fact that people are not aware that they might have it it's a challenge because of access um so just to give you some insight into that so i'm i mentioned that i work with mostly with women with hyperglycemia first diagnosed in pregnancy and that's sort of my primary research focus but in africa we often see that these women are categorized as gestational diabetes because for the first time in their life um, they get tested for hyperglycemia when they are pregnant. Um, in fact, a third of these women, when we test them after the pregnancy, remain diabetic. Um, and I'm talking about young women of reproductive age. And the reason I'm bringing this up is just that it highlights the fact that we are underdiagnosing and that certain pockets of healthcare, like antenatal care, are more geared for a preventative medicine or preventative slant, and therefore we pick up more people with diabetes. And this is a great opportunity if we are able to pick up diabetes early, and we can talk about the glycemic legacy a little bit um, later on. But, um, but certainly how to overcome that, um, I think it's creating awareness um, in all spheres of healthcare. If an individual comes to see you because of headache, you test them for diabetes. I, I think the encounter at primary healthcare should be very holistic and individualized and should be more geared towards a prevention, a preventative slant than a reactive slant. Um, so if a mother brings a child for immunizations, that mother must also have access to being tested for these common non-communicable diseases as we readily provide testing for HIV, for instance. Um, you know, these mustn't be siloed, but rather integrated to have access to early testing should they wish to do so. Um, as to the expensive nature of these things, um, certainly, I mean, cost is a big driver, but, you know, as they say, it is very cost effective to manage a dead patient because they don't cost you any money. So it is about preventing suffering and then we must you know, what is the best bang for your buck? Yeah. It is not treating the patient after they've had their stroke, you know, that costs you a lot of money. It is about intervening early on in the course of diabetes to prevent that stroke. Yeah. And then overall, the health costs should be less. Um, and it's also a consequence, you know, the perceived cost is a consequence of, if I may, siloed systems. Yeah. So, 
in a lot of African countries, you know, we will know what the expenditure is with regards to how much glucose test strips cost a hospital, for instance, over a month, but we would not know how much it costs the, the, the system to actually admit someone who have had a stroke. So it's, you know, so the expenditures are siloed and I think therefore it is easy to blame the cost of medication because it's tangible or the cost of test strips because it's tangible. But whereas the things that's less tangible and less well documented as a result of this disentangled system cannot um, sort of be discussed because we simply don't have the data. Yeah. Yeah, the way we are looking at cost and the way even African governments are choosing what to invest in, in terms of prevention and uh, providing services to patients and the perception of cost. It's, it's really something that we need to take another look at, because if you think about the COVID pandemic, within less yeah. than a year, it wiped off billions I think 79 billion, if I remember correctly, of the African economy in output costs less than a year. And, and that just shows you how important these kinds of issues are for the sustainability of the development of African economies. Very important, I think, mm -hmm. for governments to pay attention to these issues uh, and, and invest appropriately. You have commented actually in the past on the focus, the fact that African health systems are really designed to focus or to provide services for infectious diseases and traditionally are not structured in an optimal way to make sure that when a woman comes for antenatal care, we're able to provide all the other services that she may need to, for health and well-being. Can you just elaborate on how much that impacts your ability as physicians to provide adequate care for patients yeah. in the clinic? Yes, I think... You know, if a patient is suffering from a chronic infectious disease, um, you know, they live longer. And as we know, diabetes is sort of accelerated aging, if you may. So we are seeing a lot of individuals with both NCDs and infectious diseases as a result of getting, having access to IRT and so forth, these individuals now age as they would have aged. And therefore, we actually fight with the dual pandemic, you know, the NCDs that in fact overlaps with infectious diseases. But I also think, you know, we can learn so much from the structure of the clinics. And I'm just going to use the HIV clinics as a proxy um, because that's what I know best is a lot of these are funded by NPOs that um, employ the staff and that actually, you know, provide healthcare to public sector patients that are run very well. Because they have a very small focus, they are geared towards a certain outcome in that field. And I think that's a great opportunity for us to expand and to maybe piggyback on from an NCD point of view. You know, there's a system that already works well. These individuals don't only have HIV, for instance, but they also now start to develop chronic conditions like diabetes and hypertension and all the other components of the metabolic syndrome. So if we piggyback on the existing infrastructure these clinics and um, frameworks have, I think we can make a significant impact 
impact from an NCD point of view over and above the infectious diseases um, point of view. But in order to do that, I think we are going to um, have to educate the physicians at primary and secondary healthcare level and even undergrad um, in a similar fashion, you know, that we would do with the individuals doing HIV care. So often individuals who practice in HIV medicine, they do what we call the HIV diploma. Now, unfortunately in South Africa, you know, when you manage diabetes as a general practitioner, the last education you had in the field of diabetes is in your undergraduate years when you were faced with a lot of other conditions. You know, there's not a lot of practical experience. Um, and I think that is a big gap in the African healthcare environment that there's not a, a sort of something similar to a diabetes diploma that's contextually relevant. There's a lot of diplomas, you know, from first world countries, you know, that addresses medications that we don't even have access to in South Africa and that focuses on that. And that's not what we need. We need contextually relevant um, opportunities for people, healthcare workers, to educate themselves and to be employed in that setup where they can actually provide dedicated care in a preventative way for NCDs. And I believe if we have that, you know, I think we will detect um, these NCDs earlier and we will manage them optimally yeah. sooner without necessarily adding cost overall. Obviously, it's clear that the medical education has to be fit for purpose for the African context. And that's one of the major challenges that we face in the African healthcare setting where we are taking a lot of data um, on standards of care that is coming from elsewhere that may not necessarily fit with the resources that we have and the situations that we are dealing with in our own communities. I mean, in some countries, in fact, we have been looking at how to provide diabetes treatment in remote areas in some African countries. And what we find is that in some countries, you don't even have the testing facilities at the primary care level closest to the community where people would go for antenatal care for them to get a certain test for cancer, for yes. diabetes. They're going to have to go to a secondary or tertiary facility where they don't go unless they are absolutely dying. So obviously those yeah. things are impacting the quality of care that, that patients get. So we're in the middle of a pandemic and you have been doing cutting edge research on the association between COVID and diabetes. Yet another reason, another argument why it makes no sense for us to have these verticalized uh, health systems and why we need to have a more integrated approach. But talk to us a little bit more about the work you have been doing uh, between the association between COVID and diabetes and how that affects outcomes yeah. for COVID-infected patients. Yeah, Lena, so we are still continuing to learn about COVID. I don't understand the virus yet. And we are still learning about diabetes as well. So as I often say, you know, it's this equation with multiple variables. So nothing that I say is cast in stone. <laughs> so really, you know, COVID hasn't taught us anything, in my opinion, too new about diabetes. It's just 
highlighted what we already knew and put it in a scalable perspective because we could now assess these individuals and their mortality because of the fact that they have encountered a secondary infection. So it does not seem that individuals with diabetes are at higher risk of contracting COVID and that comes from various countries where we see that the background prevalence of diabetes is reflected in individuals who have COVID. I'm not talking about severe COVID. I'm just talking about COVID. We are busy analyzing our data. And I think it might be different here purely because we don't know how much individuals in the background actually, in fact, have diabetes accurately, no accurate data. And then secondly, you know, poor glycemic control has always been associated with severity of infection. Um, and recently it's been shown from a beautiful study done in Brazil in the laboratory that similar to what we see in the influenza virus, you know, that the SARS-CoV-2 virus actually increases its metabolism and its replication in, in the lung under hyperglycemic circumstances and leads to this catastrophe, you know, of a surge of inflammatory and dysregulation of inflammatory cells that we see. And, and certainly, you know, if you have diabetes, it's associated with severe COVID. Now, these associations is not necessarily causal and it's going to take a lot of time for us to sort of delineate exactly what the causal mechanisms is and for us to be able to address that. The point is, if you have or are at risk of diabetes, you should in any case address all the metabolic risk factors that you have and try and decrease your risk. For me, it's similar to putting on a seatbelt in the car. You know, you are at risk always, but you limit your risk. And what we've seen is how often individuals with COVID are in fact diagnosed with diabetic emergencies. And this ranges from people with pre-existing diabetes who for the first time are admitted for COVID. And now we see, oh, you've had diabetes for longer. And the fast breathing is not due to COVID. In fact, you have acidosis. So, um, so you do have COVID too, but the respiratory symptoms that you suffer from is a result of a metabolic disorder brought about by long-standing hyperglycemia. Um, we also unfortunately see how individuals who require insulin from the get-go with COVID do not have access to that even in urban situations where people are treated with oral antihyperglycemic agents despite having glucose values that require immediate initiation of insulin. Um, and I think that's where we can, with healthcare provider education, make a significant difference. But certainly the association of diabetes and, um, and COVID and severe COVID with the adverse outcomes associated is certainly, well, literature tells us it's, the risk is triple to have severe COVID if you have diabetes. And the same holds true for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. But importantly, you know, it highlights also things that we don't like to talk about. These individuals often come from poor socioeconomic circumstances and the poor control of their diabetes might be a proxy for that. Um, and therefore the overall package you're given or predisposed for adverse outcome. Um, you know, the uncontrolled diabetes is a result of poor socioeconomic circumstances, access all those players in the field. Um, and that's certainly something we see in South Africa, in the public healthcare sector as well.
Yes. So, so people with diabetes are not more susceptible to contracting COVID, but when they do contract it, they have worse outcomes. They have more severe disease, worse mortality rates, and they stay yeah. longer in, in, in hospitals. So if we have two thirds of people in Africa, not being diagnosed, we don't know, uh, whether they have diabetes or not. How should we think about mitigating the impact of COVID in this particular group? Firstly, I think we should prioritize screening for non-communicable diseases. And I think COVID has just highlighted that. So we must create awareness and screen early on anyone at risk for these NCDs like type 2 diabetes, firstly. The second thing is um, to when these people develop COVID, to remember that they are at high risk. If we could prevent them, prioritize vaccination policies and so forth to first target these individuals at highest risk of adverse outcome and offer um, testing for diabetes at vaccination sites because we are resurrecting all of these vaccines vaccination sites to prevent COVID, yet there are many individuals who have, for the first time, sort of made contact with primary prevention from a communicable disease perspective, but they are not offered testing for diabetes at that same point of contact. So make it easier for the individual to be tested for non-communicable diseases you know, so even if they go for the COVID vaccine, offer them a test for diabetes, hypertension, and so forth. Mm. We're already creating these pods for vaccination, but we fail to recognize the underlying problem. And, and in a sense, that is also a reactive aspect to the COVID, even though it is vaccination, which is traditionally regarded as being more preventative and proactive. So I think that's one of the things. The other thing is, I mean, there's modifiable factors and non-modifiable factors. So firstly, if you manage individuals with diabetes to make sure that they increase the testing frequency, you know, that you're able to actually, when they're admitted to hospital, be proactive. So initiate insulin according to the guidelines in individuals that were supposed to be on insulin, even before they contracted COVID, utilize that opportunity to also embark on the diabetes care. Um, and, and yeah, and I mean, modify modifiable variables. You know, we've shown that in the inpatient setting in individuals with COVID-19, we can impact on the outcome by addressing glucose control. Um, so to do that proactively and, and not to wait until uncontrolled hyperglycemia ensues. Also to be, you know, to be aware that if you are going to initiate steroids in someone who is hyperglycemic, that you are contributing to the insulin resistance. So be proactive in the sense that when initiating steroids in individuals to empower them to self-manage their blood glucose by testing themselves, which is something great that's happened during COVID um, that we monitor and we have access to more blood glucose monitors to actually give the patients to monitor their own glucose just due to a lack of staff and then to preempt that you will require more antihyperglycemic agents in someone that's already 
admitted with uncontrolled hyperglycemia, where you will add to the insulin resistance now. So uh, overall, Linnaeus, I think it's about individual consciousness, but we cannot do that without political goodwill and political prioritization of non-communicable diseases. Absolutely. And of course, the point that comes to mind when you make all these excellent points is that point you made earlier about leveraging the vertical systems we've established for HIV, AIDS, and so forth, and bringing in additional services and, and, and making it easier and simpler for patients to access the tests so that we can manage better all these issues they may experience. So listen, Africa has more than 25 million people who are living with HIV, AIDS, and a lot of these people uh, are worried that they might be more vulnerable to COVID. Many of them are fearful that their HIV infection or tuberculosis is a big risk factor for, for COVID-19. What message would you have for them? Yeah, yes, I think um, individuals with HIV and or TB are also disadvantaged and therefore they will also be at higher risk for adverse outcomes when they contract COVID-19 just due to the immune dysregulation and so forth. In the South African studies, they were usually younger and the other problem in the setting of type 2 diabetes is obesity and often these individuals with HIV and TB are fortunate if I may in the sense that they do not have the added risk of obesity for adverse outcomes. So I think it is about going back to our roots, about living healthy towards well-being, as healthy as we can. None of us, I'm a hypocrite because I don't do everything perfectly. To try each day to be better than yesterday and to leverage what we can leverage and not to lie awake in terms of things that we cannot change um, until we put our activism hats on. Um, but I think in these individuals, it's important to note that they might certainly be at higher risk to contract severe COVID-19, not necessarily contract COVID-19, but that they must take the medications that they use, not do not stop or interrupt treatment with for any disease due to a concern about contracting COVID-19. If they suspect they have COVID-19 and they've contracted it, to make sure that they mitigate that risk by actually consulting healthcare practitioners to make sure that they get the best treatment that they require early on, that might mean self-isolation only. It might not be associated with the dire outcome. And to know that the healthier we are before we contract COVID-19, even though we should take all the measures to prevent the contraction of COVID-19, you know, like wearing masks and so forth, regular hand washing, sanitizing, we should also make sure that when we do contract that we don't put others at risk and the healthier we are to start off with, the better our chance of a good outcome and that we can work on every day. And that is irrespective of whether you've got a communicable or a non-communicable disease in the yes, background. Absolutely. Makes sense. And is there a difference between people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes in terms of how uh, diabetes exacerbates COVID outcomes? Is there a difference if you have the type 1 or type 2 diabetes? Yeah. So the first studies, Linus, that came out showed, um, you know, that people with type 1 diabetes have a similar risk 
to people with type 2 diabetes, but that specific study was done in the UK and didn't correct for other factors such as renal impairment and so forth. So that is sort of um, just the typing of the diabetes. Further studies showed, in fact, that people with type 1 diabetes have a worse outcome compared to people with type 2 diabetes. But these groups were not comparable from a BMI, age, and so forth. So I think the take-home message is that any form of hyperglycemia is associated with adverse risk. When you contract COVID-19, there might be different mechanisms involved in various other mitigating factors. But if you are able to control these risk factors better, irrespective of what type you have, you might have a better overall outcome. And I certainly think that individuals with type 1 diabetes must also be prioritized for access to vaccinations due to the data we have to support the adverse outcome. Obviously, they're often younger. Um, you know, individuals with type 1 diabetes in South Africa might not live as long as they would live in the UK. So again, we must contextualize that to what we have locally. Yeah, I mean, it would be great, of course, if we could vaccinate these people, but with um, Africa projected to get vaccines not until 2023, I think we have to make do with other public health measures because vaccines right now do not look like a viable option for many of our African countries. So let's talk a little bit more about treatment. So the virus is, you know, the coronavirus infects people using the ACE2 receptors, which are expressed in the lungs, but also in the kidneys and in the heart. Millions of Africans are affected by cardiovascular problems. It's, it's a common problem that we see very often in the community. And a lot of these um, hypertension problems are managed with ACE inhibitors and statins, the kind of treatments that people are taking to control and regulate high blood pressure. So do medicines that are used in managing high blood pressure, diabetes, do they in any way affect uh, the risk of getting infected by COVID? So actually, you know, I remember this distinctly when we entered our first wave, the studies coming from the US and published and sort of linking the theoretical risk of increased um, sort of risk to develop um, or to contract SARS-CoV-2 due to that effect on the ACE receptor. And I'm so relieved um, to say that no subsequent studies, well, not that that was a study per se, but no subsequent human studies have showed that there's a risk with the use of these medications to contract COVID-19. To the contrary, you know, in most hospitalized settings and in individuals who have had hypertension, who used ACE um, inhibitors or ARBs, um, angiotensin receptor blockers and statins, they've actually had an improved outcome oh. compared to individuals who did not use that. Now, there's not enough evidence to suggest that we should initiate this in individuals without hypertension, right. um, you know, that they will have a better outcome. But certainly, you know, individuals who have used it compared to matched controls um, have had a better outcome, similar to metformin, anti-diabetic uh, medication. Now, it might again be a proxy for access and for better control and for better controlled hyperglycemia. But the studies that have shown that specifically in women, interestingly, mm. the use of metformin was associated with improved outcome of COVID-19 and sort of proposed to be in the, uh, you know, in the, the realm of the anti-inflammatory capacity 
of metformin beside. So in any person considering stopping any of these antihypertensive agents, um, oral antidiabetic agents, even when they contract COVID-19, I would strongly advise against it. You know, the data initially was not robust. It was a theoretical risk and none of that has transpired in real life. Certainly to the contrary, there seems to be an advantage to continue with these medications yes. if you're on it. Absolutely. So continue your medication. Don't Definitely. you know throw it away because that yeah. probably might I mean, bring greater time, risk. You should take all your medication yeah. <laughs> now. Yes, yes. You mentioned earlier that um, some of the patients who have been admitted to the clinic with COVID had to be initiated on insulin, and that generally uh, because uh, the virus, the SARS coronavirus is uh, destroying the bitter uh, cells that, that produce insulin. People actually need more insulin to, to be able to manage the, you know, the COVID infection and improve the outcomes. What does this mean for the majority of African people who uh, are not able to get insulin or even you know, the oral uh, agents for controlling hyperglycemia? What are some of the ways that uh, people can manage in this situation without access to the insulin that could help you? Yeah, I think most patients with early onset type 2 diabetes has a significant component of insulin resistance. Right. So not necessarily the absence of insulin, but, but rather that the treatment sort of overrides the problem, if you may, to prevent the consequences. So if we can address insulin resistance um, by, you know, by lifestyle means, and I'll just elaborate a little bit on that later, is then we can certainly impact on the need for insulin in the first place. And I think we all should do that. So how do we address our insulin resistance? So obviously the weight is a big issue, no pun intended, um, but it has been shown that physical exercise addresses insulin resistance irrespective of weight loss. So just being more physically active um, like we used to and that we were designed to be, you know, um, be constantly physically active, um, you know, to what you can actually tolerate, but to not make that a once in a week affair, to park far further away from your car, to become active in the household again, you know, and so forth. Um, all these minor things, taking the stairs instead of lifts, um, if that is your environment, um, you know, just becoming more active in your daily life. It does not have to necessarily be structured exercise, but structured exercise is also great if that is, um, you know, we tend to motivate each other if we run in packs. Um, and, and I think certainly, you know, if you do that, it's also from a safety perspective, the exercise in groups, um, maintaining social distance obviously makes a significant impact, you know, in my community where people sometimes fear to go and exercise outside yeah. alone um, after dark. So certainly, I mean, we can address our insulin resistance. Also, I mean, people often think it's, you know, if you have diabetes, it's more costly um, because of the food you need. And in fact, you know, if you eat three quarters of what is currently on your plate, it's not more costly. You require less insulin for three quarters of your plate than you require for the whole plate. And I think portion sizes, therefore, 
is also something that we can easily address. You know, we perceive portion sizes as what the modern world, you know, the McDonald's and so forth has taught us. Um, but portion size is not that. Um, you know, that's why our mothers and grandmothers could have eaten well mm. without actually developing the complications, um, you know, when they were younger. It's because the portion sizes or the access, uh, there was an artificial control of portion sizes, if you may. We don't have that problem, but we tipped over now. Also, the other thing that is a big gap in Africa with regards to insulin resistance um, and obesity is the fact that we need to address nutrition in pregnancy, um, you know, so as to not um, maintain that transgenerational um, metabolic karma, if you may, of, of, of developmental origins, you know, of being underfed intrauterine and then being predisposed to conserve afterwards. Yes also we need to sort of from, that's obviously from preventative point of view and the other big gap is the role endocrine disrupting chemicals play um you know we there are so many sort of artificial packaging that's cheaper um the the ingredients used in africa to conserve food and all over the world, I mean, limits our access to fresh food and so forth. And those chemicals also play as an inherent role. So to go back to sort of growing your own food in your garden, we're good at that. We must embrace that instead of sort of thinking um, that the pack of chips at the Spaza store down the road is better. It's yeah. not. It's a trap. We should stop believing what these big industries teach us and and listen again to to ourselves and go back to that's why i said no pun intended our roots eating our <laughs> land absolutely yeah <laughs> so um yeah just to go back to a comment that you have made before that uh just on the question of treatment um that the purpose of basal insulin is not to prevent hyperglycemia but to treat it i just wondered what prompted you to say that statement whether you were seeing a challenge with you know adherence to treatment guidelines amongst your peers or you know because yeah. we 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 are dealing with 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 these issues sometimes in terms of rational use of medicine so what prompted you yeah so i'm at uh, often um you know our registrars that specializes in internal medicine come to us very late in their training and i often see that when they come to us we have to almost brainwash them from a glucose perspective mm. so it's often perceived in the diabetes teaching and i'm not sure if there's something wrong with the teaching or if it's the perception or if it's just the malaria that we became so reactive in healthcare that we regard insulin as a means to bring sugar down um, that is unfortunately as far from the truth as it can be. We try to restore homeostasis in the body. So if we think about homeostasis, I don't have diabetes and therefore my insulin never brings my glucose down. My insulin in my body prevents my sugar from going up. So if we want to restore health in settings of not being well or of disease, our aim is to restore homeostasis. So if you want to restore homeostasis, you must sort of, you must try and mimic physiology. 
So if we use insulin to bring sugar down, there's two problems with that. First of all, that would suggest that the sugar is already up. So I've done something wrong before. If that sugar is high and we bring the sugar down, if that is coupled by consciousness and a plan to prevent the next hyperglycemia, that's fine because that's a conscious decision. But if we use insulin to bring sugar down, we lose half of the battle because remember, then you already have hyperglycemia for 50% of the day. Certainly in some settings, like in the hospital, if the sugar is high and someone has got a glucose and they've got a diabetic ketoacidosis, in that setting, it's a reactive setting. Sure, we use insulin there to bring glucose down. But the plan should always be to restore homeostasis out of emergency situations mm -hmm. and to use the medication to rather prevent the glucose from going up and then not have the complications or have the advantages of that instead of actually, um, you know, bringing glucose down, which is quite a reactive way of managing hyperglycemia and quite dangerous for mm -hmm. that matter. It's about mimicking the physiology, right? Normal physiology and trying to, to stay with that. So, okay. So, um, yes, go ahead. I Sorry to interrupt, but I mentioned the legacy effect and I think that links nicely to this. So in the diabetes world, we have a lot of studies that have shown us that in both type one and type two diabetes, if we adequately or optimally address the hyperglycemia early in the course of the disease, mm -hmm you get this situation of metabolic advantage that can last more than seven to 10 years after the initial intervention. Yes. And I often, when I talk to the patients, I often tell them this is the foundation of your health going forward. Yes. And if we use insulin to bring glucose down, you know, we disregard that fundamental aspect of laying the foundation of diabetes care right. by being reactive. So we want all our people living with diabetes houses foundations to be solid, to be able to sort of produce or to provide a solid space to start from. And therefore we will try our utmost best to not bring glucose down, but to rather prevent it from going up and to restore homeostasis from, from the get-go. And so the sooner we pick them up, right, mm -hmm. the, the better we can actually lay the right foundation that helps us to better manage diabetes going forward, allowing patients to have better quality of life. But mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is that there is a gap between what we need and what is happening. We are not picking up two thirds of people with diabetes. So now how do we close the gap in order to reduce the impact of diabetes? COVID obviously has put a spotlight on, on the opportunity for us to strengthen surveillance and detect sooner and so forth. What kind of long-term measures would you as an African physician like to see in order to correct for the historical neglect of non-communicable disease, effective non-communicable disease management within African health systems. So let's say Minister Zwelimkize says, Ankia, I will give you all the resources that you need, put together an action plan, how we are going to mitigate the effect of diabetes. What would you like to see? So, uh, Linnaeus, I think it starts 
I wanted to say in primary school, but I think it starts in utero. So if you want to get bang for your buck, you go to where you would need the least impact for the best outcome. You know, as humans, we have what we call plasticity. And the older we become, the less plastic we become. I mean, you'll know the more resistant we become to change. So I think, you know, you can't approach this non-communicable disease problem from a healthcare sector only. You need to include um, education, social structures, and it must be a country approach with all of these role players focusing and high, and 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 sort of prioritizing the prevention of non-communicable diseases from the mother's womb until you know until someone dies of natural causes at hopefully an older age and and that is by strengthening systems you know addressing beliefs um in certain communities you know south africa has got 11 languages making information accessible yeah. teaching and ingraining you know these principles from young on focusing on education in in the young giving the community something to believe in you know sort of creating structures for health yeah. so exercise groups one of the big examples in cape town is um, the wow movement is western cape on wellness so they create these friendly streets um, where they give the kids skipping ropes for instance and show them how to skip ropes so so unfortunately, if Zwelim Kizi comes to me today, I'll run away because, <laughs> <laughs> because I will need the buy-in not only from Zwelim Kizi, I will need the buy-in from all these components that contribute to health that includes biopsychosocial structures that yes. need to prioritize it as a country to actually make an impact in the outcome. If it comes to me from health only, um, I will prioritize the care of women diagnosed with hyperglycemia in pregnancy because we can get significant bang for our buck. So if we manage the, the women with gestational diabetes or at risk of gestational diabetes, we prevent the transgenerational and intergenerational risk of diabetes and we impact on the household hmm. um, if we educate that women with diabetes in pregnancy and everyone in a community starts to eat better without added expenditure, just with some know-how. Yes, it's uh, your, <laughs> well, I um, I can understand uh, your reaction that you might consider running away because it's, it's an least, overwhelming problem. At I least can... I'll get some exercise <laughs> while running. <laughs> Exactly. So that's great. Uh, but the point you make that is very valid about the need for community involvement. I think a lot of the health challenges that we are facing in African communities can be and should be tackled from a community perspective and, you know, uh, not only equipping, educating communities on some of the things that can that, that they can do, empowering them to take action, helping children uh, or creating spaces that are friendly for children for people to exercise safely going back to our roots and eating their roots <laughs> that kind of thing so i see that we are getting to the end what sort of actions would you would you maybe leave us with 
from what you have seen some useful things that you would like to share with patients or with with your peers some of the things one can do to get a handle on this problem especially when managing diabetes and covid patients yes i think it is about consciously restoring homeostasis and by taking one step back each day because we've overstepped the non-communicable disease boundary in so many ways um so it is towards one step back towards homeostasis yeah. consciously wonderful wonderful dr ankia kotse thank you so much for speaking to us today and um i hope to welcome you again and talk more about other health challenges that you're dealing with in your clinic and how we can improve healthcare in Africa. It would be great and a privilege. Thank you for the opportunity, Lynn. Thank you for your time. Bye-bye for now. <laughs> Bye.